This year's version of the UN Climate Meeting, or COP, concluded last week in the United Arab Emirates. Nearly 200 nations from around the world agreed to a historic deal to transition away from fossil fuels in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. And leaders pledged $700 million in funds to address the loss and damage from climate change. But as with any global agreement, now comes the hard part of turning words on paper into reality as countries decide how to implement their new commitments. This is the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Parash Shah. Joining the show to discuss the developments at COP28 and what comes next is Mark Nevitt. Mark is a professor at Emory Law School and an expert on climate change. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jesse Security. So the last time we talked to you on the show was at the end of COP27 last year. Can you explain what the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is, and how do these annual meetings of nearly 200 countries every year on climate change fit into that? So the Framework Convention on Climate Change is sort of the base of the international climate governance pyramid. It's an international agreement, and each nation essentially signs on to the Framework Convention on Climate Change using their own domestic legal processes. And that's significant for the United States of America because the Framework Convention on Climate Change is a treaty under U.S. law, and that went through the Senate for its advice and consent in the early 90s. It was actually negotiated by President Bush, a Republican, in the early 90s. And so that is essentially a critical part of the international governance structure. And because it's a treaty, it's much harder to unwind that in the, in the United States. Some of the follow-on conference of parties um, have been what's called executive agreements in the United States. So the Paris Climate Agreement, which many of your listeners are familiar with, is an executive agreement, not a treaty. So relatively easier to enter the Paris Climate Agreement. But for the United States, it is easy to exit as well. And President Trump uh, sought to do that upon his taking his presidency. So each conference of parties on the Article 7 of the Framework Convention on Climate Change calls for nations to come together and sort of build building blocks off of this climate governance pyramid. So COP28 is the 28th time this has happened. It's happened every single year for the international climate negotiators to get together. Um, There was one brief pause during uh, COVID-19. And so the decision that was issued at the Conference of Parties 28 was was called the first global uh, stock take decision, which reflected um, the first time uh, since Paris where the nations were coming together to sort of take stock of their collective climate accomplishments. And what were the big outcomes from COP28? Sure. I would classify it as two, I would call major outcomes and one uh, maybe disappointment uh, powers uh, for your listeners. And I just say that in the backdrop of this was uh, a very challenging geopolitical situation with the Russia-Ukraine war obviously happening and 
uh, the Israel-Gaza war happening uh, starting October 7th. So the geopolitical headwinds were certainly there. And the conference itself got off to a rocky start. Uh, the UAE head, Sultan al-Jaber, is also the co-head of the UAE oil company in the United Arab, Arab Emirates. And he was supposedly, allegedly meeting with oil executives uh, prior to the beginning of the Conference of Parties to sort of work on some business deals with fossil fuel companies. So that was reported on. He was criticized. And there was actually a lot of criticism of UAE being uh, the host of this conference. Um, but so there's two major outcomes that were significant in the sense that the first one was a decision by all parties to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, this was the first time this has happened in the 28 Conference of Parties. And I have more to say that in my just security piece and, and a little bit later. Another substantive outcome I would tie to this conference was the Sunnyland Statement. It was not technically negotiated at COP, but COP28 served as the impetus for the United States and China to sign a statement uh, on the climate agreement. Um, this was uh, a run-up to the Conference of Parties, and essentially the U.S. and China recommitted to working together on the climate crisis. That's really important because the United States is the largest historic greenhouse gas emitter, and China is the largest current emitter. So this sort of jump-started U.S.-China climate negotiations, which I think is absolutely critical for any kind of substantive climate progress. So one major disappointment I would highlight would be the establishment of um, a loss and damage fund. Loss and damage was seen as a big win from the last conference of parties in Sharm el-Sheikh in 2022, established a fund, which essentially would uh, go from developed nations to the to developing nations, poorer nations, to help offset uh, the losses from climate impacts. Um, the the amount of damage, loss and damage facing these nations is extraordinary, $400 billion per year. And there was a pledge of loss and damage uh, at COP28 um, of $700 million, uh, but that's quite small, right? So that's somewhat akin in my article, I said it's somewhat akin to funding a, a gigafire, a massive wildfire with a garden hose. I want to zoom in to this agreement around transitioning away from fossil fuels. What is the key language there and what are its potentials? Sure. So it is a, a, a breakthrough textual commitment. And the significance, I think, Paris, is that this transition away from fossil fuels will serve as a signal to businesses, policy makers, lawmakers, that renewable energy is the future and fossil fuel investments and development is really the past. The language has to be agreed to um, by all 195 nations that are part of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. That is just really, really challenging to get 195 nations to agree on anything, right? And so the, the textual commitment is significant because you have this centering around this language to transition away from fossil fuels. And so you can just read the text of the agreement and any law student or, or lawyer could highlight uh, some issues with the text. And so maybe what I'll do is just sort of read the text for your listeners and then walk you through the various questions that are there. So the, the decision calls on parties to transition away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, 
orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So what's critical, I think, is it does not call for an immediate phase out by a date certain. It's a transition away by 2050 in keeping with the science. This language is a bit softer from than phase down. It's transitioning away. And again, the goal is to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. This phrase in a just, orderly, and equitable manner is not defined in the text. So that opens the door to maneuverability and interpretation from each nation. Um, One interpretation is that developing nations, the poor nations, will transition away at a slower pace than developed nations. Um, this This word orderly, I think, is being looked upon very closely by oil producing states and petro states. These are nations whose economies are deeply dependent on for fossil fuel extraction, well, they'll desire a slow orderly transition for their economy as it weans itself away from fossil fuels. So it is significant. We have 195 nations agreeing to this textual commitment to transition away from fossil fuels. But I think there is room for maneuver. And this is why the alliance of small island states, the 39 uh, island states, Uh, call this decision riddled uh, with loopholes. Thanks very much for that walkthrough. We here at Just Security always love a good textual analysis. At the end of the day, how much progress are we talking about here? Uh, If there are these loopholes and this language that is porous and that creative lawyering can get around, how much potential does this agreement actually have? Is it more symbolic or does it have teeth or could it have teeth? Well, at offer, there's no really legal binding uh, commitment and enforcement for much of international law to include this um, agreement is always problematic. I think the thinking is that this will be a signal um, to businesses, investors, policymakers, lawmakers, fill in the blank, that the world is uh, moving past fossil fuels. And to be fair, at every conference of party now into the future, Nations, to include the nations which are really facing the brunt of climate impacts, can hold this piece of paper up and and hold it to account and um, apply political pressure in an international forum to to remind these nations of what they committed to. So there's a bit of legitimacy that I think nations need to be concerned about, particularly fossil fuel nations that that rely upon fossil fuels. And I think that because the Conference of Parties meets every year, it'll be front and center. Now, the world economy, Paris, is deeply dependent on fossil fuels. We know that. And we know that climate change is uh, is causing, um, is due to fossil fuel usage and is causing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think there will be fighting uh, this language um, and, and there's powerful economic incentives from oil companies and state-run oil companies to transition away at a slower pace. To give you one example, Aramco, which is the Saudi oil company, um, the revenue there is half a trillion dollars per year. In the United States, ExxonMobil is $413 billion per year, so just slightly less than Aramco. And it's interesting, this, t- this transition language, because 
in the United States, the national intelligence estimate explicitly stated that petrostates, nations that rely upon fossil fuel, will fear these transition risks uh, as we look to decarbonize. So there are powerful economic incentives that are at play. And that's why I always said, say, after the Conference of Parties, the real work begins to ensure implementation, transparency, and accountability. Right. So in the next year, looking ahead to COP29, which will be in Azerbaijan, what should we be looking for? What are the main trends that we should be watching in the next 12 months? I think it's important to look at how nations are responding to this transition language. We saw kind of a mixed response from, frankly, Saudi Arabia, which seemed to suggest it has room to maneuver from this language. So I always say, you know, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. So follow the actions of of their nations as they look to uh, decarbonize their economy. The United States, of course, has really important domestic legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure law that um, is really important for mitigation and adaptation. And so the U.S. already kind of has a pretty good glide path to to move towards renewable energy. I think it's important to look at the U.S. and China dynamics. The Sunnyland statement's important. Could that be a springboard to broader efforts and, frankly, cooperation on climate? Um, I also look at India. India is increasingly becoming a key player. Its GDP grows about 6 7% per year. Its emissions are uh, are growing. It's historically been seen as a developing nation, but that that is... Uh, an economy that is heavily reliant upon fossil fuel usage and how we manage the Indian economy is going to be really, really important. I also think that um, we need to take a look at renewable energy in all its forms. We, there was discussion of nuclear at Conference of Parties 28, but you know, meaningful nuclear progress has to have some permitting reform and uh, is not sort of the, the silver bullet to solve the climate crisis. It's, a, it's of course, a low-carbon fuel source that has the benefit of you can build it on your home sovereign soil, but there's a, also an issue of nuclear waste and just environmental permitting of nuclear is, is very, very challenging. In my home state of Georgia, where I live, um, the Vodal nuclear power plant is the first power plant built to the United States in 30-some-odd years, massively over budget, massively over timeline. So um, climate change, we don't have that time to um, to really uh, take our time with uh, bridging up or building up our renewable energy sources. And on top of all of that, the U.S. will have a presidential election next year. How is climate playing into the 2024 election process and domestic politics? So I think 2024 is a really critical election. And in part, uh, you know, President Biden appears to be the Democratic nominee appears that former President Trump is the leading Republican nominee, and you couldn't have two different people on the climate governance uh, stage. President Trump actually took any mention of climate change away from the national security um, statement uh, strategy, rather, in 2017. Recall that uh, President Trump moved away from the Paris Climate Accord in 2017. Uh, and has not been sort of someone who is an active engagement on these conference uh, parties. How this will play out in the 2024 election, I think, remains to be seen. The Inflation Reduction Act, that work will continue. I think my President Biden will 
be focused on the economic benefits of that. It remains to be seen how sort of the climate issue uh, is front and center uh, for the presidential election. It certainly was an issue in 2020, but we have a stark <laughs> difference in outlooks on the role of international and international governance between the two front runners right now. Let me just say this, that what we need to do to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the Paris Climate Accord goals, is extraordinarily difficult. Um, we need to reduce our collective emissions from the United States and around the world by 43%. And, and right now emissions are increasing. So um, I think that this has a salience. It has a reality that is we, we cannot uh, dismiss. It's hard to dismiss, especially as we see more extreme weather, more climate impacts, and frankly, the voices of um, different communities affected by climate change um, being highlighted. But it's a massive problem, and there really is a, a pretty stark difference between the two leading candidates right now. To wrap this up with a note of hope, in your Just Security piece, you wrote that we'll need creative and innovative legal solutions and technological solutions. What do some of those look like? Sure. And I think that as a someone who teaches climate change at Emory and studies environmental law, you have to be an optimist. You have to be sort of a rational optimist when you approach these issues. So I think the Conference of Parties to, is, is just one uh, tool, international governance tool for solving the climate crisis. And we can't ask it to do too much. Again, it's 195 nations have to come together. Um, but it is an important piece, but it's not the only piece. And so I think technology could play a significant role. We've seen a massive um, just increase in uh, R&D towards renewable energy. One thing that excites me is carbon capture and storage. And we're seeing more investment in carbon capture and storage is the idea of essentially taking carbon out of the air and putting it to the ground or, or sequestering it in some other format. Um, so what I talked about in the article is that we need more of a silver buckshot idea where we just have all different uh, approaches, focus on R&D, focus on technology, focus on renewable energy, carbon capture and storage. Yes, the Conference of Party needs to be there as well to do its work, um, but we need innovative technological tools to, to help us uh, avoid this crisis. We're seeing, obviously, EVs, our, our electric vehicles are playing a big role in the transportation sector, but we need... Um, all the above, more, faster, all hands on deck to borrow a term from the Navy to, to avert um, climate disaster this decade. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed yet that you'd like to add? Yeah, I would offer that the next conference of parties is in Baku, Azerbaijan. I think this is somewhat of a strange choice from where I stand. Um, if you were to look at Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, which is in which, took, which was last year, Dubai, which is this year, and the next year is Azerbaijan. It's three cities within just a couple thousand miles of each other. Azerbaijan relies heavily upon oil and gas for its economy. So I think that that could be a missed opportunity. I would, like, would have loved to see a conference of parties uh, in, the, in the South Pacific or really at an, in an area that is really at the front lines of, of climate impacts. Um, but there are political issues at play when how they decide what nation hosts uh, a conference of parties. So I think it'll be a significant one uh, next year. Everyone is significant. Everyone is really important. 
particularly it's going to be an election year and it'll take place right after the U.S. presidential election. So, so stay tuned. There's a lot to track there. We'll be following all of it at Just Security. As you note, Mark, there's a need for many different types of innovative solutions. Hopefully your students will be on the front lines of that in a few years. Thank you again for joining the show. Thank you so much. This episode was hosted by me, Paris Shah. It was edited and produced by Tiffany Chang, Michelle Eigenheer, and Clara App. Our theme song is The Parade by Hey Pluto. Special thanks to Mark Nevin. You can read all of Just Security's coverage of COP28, including Mark's analysis, on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 